You are listening to a sermon by Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. Well, as James said, we are starting a new preaching series today as we start 2021. We're going to be working our way through Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. The series entitled is, is titled Living Jesus Strong in Light of Jesus' Return, which I think is a contemporary way of really expressing the theme of uh, this letter. And we're to start right at the beginning. This morning our text is 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. If you don't have a Bible with you, it's printed for you in the bulletin. You can follow the reading there. This is God's Word. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. When He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, you are here this morning with us by your Spirit, and so we would ask you to speak to us through your word and strengthen us and transform us as we start this new year. Lord, forgive my sins and enable me now to speak what you would have me and all of us hear from 2 Thessalonians today. May it give Jesus all the glory, and we pray in his name. Amen. Well, you know, if you've come to the point of trusting your life to Jesus, then you are right now already Jesus strong it's easy though in the context of persecutions and trouble and suffering uh, to forget your Jesus strong 
right? And, and instead to, to be living sort of on edge, to, to one be wondering if God is really there, if God's really for you, if God loves you. It's easy to fall into thinking that you are a victim of uh, circumstances and people beyond your control. And, and all of that, of course, leads to frustration and worry and fear and anger. All things that are inconsistent with you being a Jesus strong person. Well, you wouldn't be the first. It started pretty quickly uh, after the church started. Paul's two letters to the church in Thessalonica are uh, some of Paul's earliest letters, perhaps his earliest letters, most likely written within 20 years of the death and resurrection uh, of Jesus. And the believer, the backstory of the of the founding of the Thessalonian church is in Acts 17. Uh, the believers in this young church were experiencing intense persecution and, and all kinds of difficulties. It, it was so bad, in fact, that Paul, who founded the church, uh, was run out of town w only after a month or so. So Paul was not with the Thessalonians very long before, uh, 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 as he planted this church. But, I mean, it, it was so, that's how intense the persecution was. So, so this is a church that's experiencing persecution for their faith in, in, in addition to other kinds of general difficulties of living. They're also experiencing bad teaching, and that bad teaching is translating into sort of subpar Christian living. And as a result, this, this young church needed encouragement, it needed correction, it needed direction. And that's why Paul's writing. And what I want you to see, what I hope we all see, is that what Paul had to say to this church, to these believers dealing with, with trouble and persecution, is every bit as relevant to, to you and me today as it was to the Thessalonians in 51 or 52 AD. What we're going to do is unpack these 10 verses uh, by identifying, uh, drawing out from these 10 verses, four principles. Uh, and these principles generally, uh, generally track the text. Uh, and I think these principles are going to help you and me as we, as we face our own enemies and difficulties and persecutions, okay? Four principles. Principle number one. How we talk to each other and how we talk about each other really matters in times of difficulties. Really at all times, but, but especially in times of difficulty. This is verses 3 and 4. This principle you, you know from work, and, you, and if you're married, you certainly know it from marriage. And if you've, uh, if you've been anywhere on social media recently, you know it from social media. Right? If you're under stress, 
one of the first things that gets impacted is, is our interpersonal communication. It just, it's just true. You know it at work. You know it in your marriage. You know it when you open up Facebook. We let our anger and our frustration color the way we talk to each other and talk about each other. It, it's one of the first things that gets affected. It's a pretty good barometer of, of sort of where our, you know, our hearts are. I mean, it, it, and, and our language becomes, our interpersonal language becomes very quickly less than kind, right? And, and less than, than, than loving. But Paul shows us here another way. He shows us how, even in difficult circumstances, even under intense stress, how you talk to each other and talk about each other when you're Jesus strong. Paul does two things. First, he says in verse 3 that he prays. He he. he Thanks, and it's a prayer of gratitude. He's praying a a prayer of thanksgiving to God for what God is doing in the lives of the Thessalonian Christians. In fact, it's in an unusual way. He, this isn't, you don't see this in Paul's other letters. He he feels, he says, a really a kind of a moral obligation to pray this prayer of thanksgiving. He says it's only right and fitting that I should be uh, thankful to God for what he's doing among you, what he's doing in you. But but the the key here in terms of talking to each other is, is that Paul doesn't stop there. I mean, he doesn't stop with praying for his friends in Thessalonica. He tells his friends what he's praying. He's, think about how that would feel to you. When you have a friend or or a mentor come to you and say, hey, I want you to know I've been praying and I've been thanking God for what he's doing in your life. I see the fruit of God working in your life and I I want you to know I've been praying to God, thanking him for what he's, he's doing in your life. Think about how that makes you feel. He Paul's affirming without flattering, isn't he? He's, he's building them up without puffing them up. That's the Jesus strong way of talking to each other. But he does something else in verse 4. Paul boasts about the work of God's grace in these Thessalonian believers to other people. Right? He's not just talking to them, he's talking about them to other Christians, to other churches. He's boasting about them in other churches. Now that's interesting because the the Thessalonians have issues. This this is not a perfect church. These are not, you know, these are not uh, in, you know, perfectly exemplary believers. And that's why he's writing 
to, to correct some of that. But when he talks to other people about them, notice that he's not stabbing them in the back. He's not pointing out their faults. He's not, he, he, he's not focusing on the negative. He's focusing when he talks about them to other people on the gracious good that God is doing in their lives. So friends, in times like we are in, in times like the Thessalonians were in, this is how brothers and sisters in Christ talk to each other and talk about each other. Because even though we are, as believers, invested by the Holy Spirit, Jesus strong, we also know that, that each of us is a work in progress. That we haven't arrived, but but that God is at work in our lives, growing us, maturing us, changing us. And so we encourage one another. We speak well to and about one another. I, I don't know about you, that convicts me. You know, how are, how are you doing in this, right? The hotter it gets, the more the Jesus strong communicate to each other and about each other in loving, gracious, eyes on Jesus way. That's the first principle. How we talk to each other and about each other matters. Principle number two. This is from verses four and five. Afflictions and persecutions and those, when, when afflictions are probably refer to sort of general difficulties of, of living in a, in, a, in a world of sin, persecution, the difficulties specifically associated with being a Christian, with, with bearing the name of Jesus. Afflictions and persecutions are the normal, expected, and ordained realities of Jesus' strong people. Let me say it again, afflictions and persecutions are the normal, expected, and ordained realities of Jesus' strong people. I keep saying this, yeah, I know you're, I, I probably sound like a one-string guitar, but I keep saying it because the Bible keeps saying it, and because Christians in America have such a hard time believing it. Our attitude toward difficulty, toward suffering, is, is, um, is very different from the attitude of our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world. It's, it's very different from, from the early Christians that we read about in Scripture. Paul reminded Timothy, right, that young pastor in Ephesus, uh, Paul said, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Luke reminded us in Acts chapter 5 that, that the apostles rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. That's a very different attitude that, than, than, than so much of the American church has toward 
suffering. And what it, what it means is that as difficult and as unprecedented as 2020 was and as 2021 is starting out to be, we as followers should not see it as abnormal. This is where you and I are called to live out and persevere in our faith in Jesus Christ, just like the Thessalonians. Now, if you're like me, um, you tend to look at the surface of things. I think it's just what a lot of us do. You know, we, we turn on the TV, we turn on our computer monitors, we turn on our phones, and, and we, you know, we're, we're, we're just bombarded with images, and, we, and we're looking really at the surface. And what we see is a lot of injustice, a lot of suffering, a lot of unrighteousness, a lot of unfairness of things that are happening around us, happening to us, happening to people, other people. But Paul is urging us here, as, as Jesus' strong people, to, to look through the surface to the reality behind the surface, the unseen reality behind what we typically just see, right? Look at the end of verse 4 there. Paul, Paul recognizes that, that the, these the Thessalonian believers are, are, are facing serious persecutions and afflictions. But then immediately, right, verse 5, look what he says. This is evidence. This is the plain indication of the righteous judgment of God. What is? The, their afflictions and the sufferings that they are enduring through. That is evidence of what? The righteous judgment of God. That you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Do you hear what Paul's saying there? What he's saying is that behind the unrighteousness of human beings, God is doing the right thing behind human injustice God is working out his perfect justice behind human lying God is bringing to bear his perfect truth and in doing that friends God is preparing you he's preparing you for kingdom life with him. Right? So not one bit of your troubles or your suffering is ever, ever haphazard or lacks purpose. Afflictions and persecutions are the normal, expected, and ordained realities of Jesus' strong people. Now let me just say one more thing before we go to the next principle number three, that one last thought. You know, the goal here 
isn't that you just endure, right? That you just persevere. The goal isn't that that you're still standing at the end of 2020, maybe battered and bloodied and bruised, but you're still standing, right? It's not just endurance. God powers us by his spirit to endure as, as Jesus' strong people for a purpose, and, there, and, those, and it's a twofold purpose. And Paul identifies those purposes in verse 3. The purpose of persevering through these hard times is that you would grow in your faith in Jesus and that you would grow in your love for one another. See that in verse 3? Now I know for me, difficult times, difficulties, challenges in my life are, are very often times of deepening faith in Jesus. In fact, I, I mean, I, I, I wish it weren't so, but it, it seems like for, for my faith to grow, I have to continually graduate from the school of hard knocks, right? That that, that is really how I grow in my faith in Jesus, that, that going through hard times. And what makes them hard most often is that is that something I've been leaning on for strength you know depending upon for comfort for security for identity for success something other than Jesus that something has been taken away it's been threatened And that's hard, it's difficult, but what does it make me do? It makes me lean once again all the, all the more on, on to Jesus, and that's a good thing. But where I need to grow more, and I think 2020 has probably shown us where a lot of Christians need to grow, is, is in our love for one another. You know, I, we prob you, you probably, like me, can see, yeah, I understand how hard times make my faith grow, my faith in Jesus grow. Because Jesus is Jesus, right? He's, he's, he's easy to love. He's easy to trust. But when I'm, in, when I'm going through a hard time, to, it's, it, it, it's more of a challenge to grow in my love for, for, for other people especially people that are hard to love. But friends, God puts us through these hard times together. And it's no mistake that Paul, almost, when he's writing to these churches, almost always uses the second person plural, right? He's always, he very rarely talks to an individual Christian. It's always to a group of Christians. God puts us through these hard times together. Not so that we can tear each other down, but so that we can come together, Jesus strong, and love and support one another. That's the purpose of our endurance. To grow in our faith in Jesus, to grow in our love for one another. Principle number three. And this, I think, will help you and me to do this, 
to do what I just said, to, to grow, especially to grow in our love for one another. Here's the principle. Future judgment enables present perseverance and love. Future judgment enables present perseverance and love. This is verses 6 and 7. So you may be asking, well, okay, I'm going through hard times. How, how do I, going through those tr troubles, become even more Jesus strong? How do I persevere through those troubles, grow in faith in Jesus, and especially how do I grow in love for one another? And Paul tells us. He, Paul gives the Thessalonians, and he gives to you and me, a power to do that. And the power is what? It's the future judgment of God. Paul immediately tells us that one truth that creates the space and the power to grow and to love even our enemies is the future judgment that Jesus is going to accomplish. Paul reminds us in verse 6 that Jesus is coming back He's returning, and he's, he's coming back to pay back. He's coming back to pay back with affliction those who have afflicted you. He's coming back to relieve you who have been afflicted, to give you rest. What Paul is saying here really is another way of saying what the Old Testament says. Right when, when the Old Testament says, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. See, Paul is reminding us that as Christians, we are able to leave ultimate justice to God. And if, we, if we're enabled to do that, if we know that ultimate justice is going to happen, and it's going to happen by Jesus' hand, when Jesus returns in the future, then you and I are freed up, even in the midst of difficulties, not only to trust God, but to love other people, even people who are our enemies. Right? To, we're, we're freed up. Future judgment frees us up to do what Jesus told us to do. Love and pray for our enemies. Now you guys know, and especially those of you who are in colleges or universities now, especially probably know since you're hearing it, critics of Christianity have long argued, right, that since the God of the Bible is a God of vengeance, God of wrath, and when they say God of the Bible, they typically mean the God of the Old Testament as if the God of the Old Testament is somehow different than the God of the New Testament. He's not. But they say, since, since this God that the Bible portrays is, is a God of vengeance, his followers inevitably become like that God. They become violent. They become vengeful. And that's why religion is, is a cause of wars, they say. And unfortunately, recent events have played out uh, and played right into the hands uh, of those critics of Christianity. But listen, friends, the reality is this. 
The best justification for human nonviolence is the certainty of future divine judgment. The best justification for human nonviolence, for an argument to not retaliate, the best justification for that is the certainty of future divine judgment. That was the thesis of Miroslav Volf in his Christian Croatian theologian. Grew up in Croatia, knows what violence and hatred is. Wrote a very important book in the 1990s called Exclusion and Embrace. And that was really the thesis of his book, that, that, that to, to break the cycle of violence, to break this, you know, this, this cycle of, of uh, revenge uh, that, that requires a belief in divine vengeance. Let, let me, let me I'll, I'll quote to you from this, from his book and, and, uh, and kind of uh, explain it as I go. He says, my thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many Christians, especially in the West. It's us. He says, to the person who's inclined to dismiss it, dismiss his thesis, that nonviolence requires a belief in future judgment. He says, let, let me give you, let, he says, imagine a scenario, okay? He says, imagine this scenario, and it's actually a scenario that, that, that happened with him. He said, um, imagine you're delivering a lecture in a war zone. And he did that. He delivered a paper that, that was the basis of, of, this, of his book in, in, in Croatia, in a war zone. And he said, among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have first been plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. And then imagine the topic of your lecture is this, a Christian attitude toward violence. And imagine the thesis is this, we should not retaliate because God is perfect, non-coercive love. That is, we should not retaliate because God is, is not a God of justice. He's not a God of judgment. He's a God of love. My God is a God of love, not judgment. Heard that line before? And, he, right? and that's what the, the liberal critics of Christianity say. Look, the, the fact that your God is a God of judgment and vengeance is going to make you violent. Uh, God, God is God of perfect love. God doesn't judge. He's, right? uh, and it's that that should motivate you to, to, to nonviolence. And, and, and Miroslav Volf says this, soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, that thesis will invariably die. Guys, God is a God of love, and because he's a God of love, he's just. He can't be perfectly loving unless he's perfectly just.
and to tell those Croatians whose family members have been raped and killed and whose homes have been burned uh, that they shouldn't retaliate because God is not going to exercise judgment because he's, got, he's love doesn't do anything for them because it's not true. Jesus is coming again. Jesus is going to judge. And friends, that gives you and me the space and the power to love even our enemies and to pray for them and to kill them, to pray for them. Finally, principle number four. This is it, guys. We're almost done. Future return. The future return and judgment of Jesus must drive all people to trust in Jesus and marvel at him. The future return and judgment of Jesus must drive all people to trust in Jesus and to marvel at him. That's verses 8 through 10. You know, judgment's a daunting thing to talk about. Uh, Jesus talked about it a lot. He was not uh, daunted uh, by it. Um, it's, it. It is a daunting reality. Paul tells us here that if you don't pass God's final judgment, if on that day you don't pass, the sentence is verse 9, eternal destruction. Now, what does that mean? Now, you, you don't try to comfort yourself in saying, well, if God exists, if, if, if God really does exist, and if there is a judgment, uh, and I understand how love sort of requires judgment, eternal destruction must mean that he just, you know, I, he just sort of vaporizes me, right? Annihilation. I, I cease to exist. No, that's not, that's not what it means. Look. What, what does eternal destruction look like? Well, Paul tells us exactly what it looks like. I mean, if you, if you read verse 9, I mean, the, the a way to sort of uh, translate it would be, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, namely, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. That's what eternal destruction is. It's being banished away from the presence or the face, literally the face of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Now you may say, well, that doesn't seem so bad. Think again, right? What, what we don't understand is how dependent upon the presence and the, and the smiling face of God we are moment to moment. What we don't fully appreciate is that what we know and experience in this world as beauty and joy and love and peace and goodness and kindness are only there and are only available to be experienced to us in some mediated way because God is there. Because God's face is toward us. That's why we know and experience beauty and love and hope and peace and goodness and kindness. 
And to be sent away, to be eternally destroyed, is to be sent away from God and therefore have a forever existence without any of those things. With no love and no possibility of love. With no beauty and no possibility of beauty. No joy, no hope. Truly a terrifying, living hell. It's interesting. Charles Darwin actually began to experience it and he didn't know he was experiencing it. In his later years when he was writing his autobiography, he confessed in his autobiography, quote, quote, he says, now for many years I cannot endure to read a line of poetry. He had talked about how he used to love poetry, love painting, love music. And he says, but now for many years I cannot endure to read a line of poetry. I've tried lately to read Shakespeare and found it so intolerably dull that it nauseated me. I've also lost my taste for pictures or music. Then he goes on, he says, my mind seems to have become a kind of machine for grinding general laws out of large collections of facts. But why this should have caused the atrophy of that part of the brain alone on which the higher tastes depend, right? His appreciation for beauty. He says, I cannot conceive. I don't know why. But, he says, the loss of these tastes is a loss of happiness and may possibly be injurious to the intellect and more probably to the moral character by enfeebling the emotional part uh, of our nature. That to me is a very frank admission by Charles Darwin that as he in, in, in his intellectual pursuits turned the face of God away from him, he began to experience the absence of God's face. And it was a loss of beauty and therefore a loss of happiness. It's a terrifying, terrifying thing. But the flip side of God's judgment, right? A favorable verdict in God's judgment means what? Verse 10, Jesus being glorified in his saints, in his holy ones. That's a, that's a perfect translation of the Greek. It's a literal translation of the Greek. And, it's, and, it's, and I don't really know what it means. What does it mean that Jesus, that, that when we get through judgment and you survive the judgment, that Jesus is going to be glorified in you, in you. I don't fully know what that means, but it must mean that God somehow brings you and me into and allows us to participate in and partake of the very beauty and joy and love and peace and goodness of God himself. You know, I think that's what we want. I, I've talked to you guys what, about what I used, what I turned, coined in my own life, the frustration of beauty. 
that when I'm standing before something beautiful, uh, sometimes, sometimes it's music, but m usually it's nature. If I'm standing on, th on the edge of Half Dome, uh, or if I'm standing on the edge of the rim of the Grand Canyon, or if I'm standing on, on, on one of the pillars of Zion National Park, there's a part of me that as I, as I observe that beauty that, that wants to jump into it, do you know what I'm talking about? It's scary. It's, it's both wonderful and scary at the same time. It's standing on the edge and feeling that, feeling an urge to, to jump. You know, against all my self-preservation instincts. And it's that, that, that desire to jump into it is, I think, what, what that beauty is. is it's, it's, it's something about what this is talking about that we don't desire to just look at beauty. We, we want to be part of it. We want to participate in it. And I think what, what this is saying is that in somehow in the final judgment, God's going to let us jump. And we will, we will, will be part of and his, his beauty and his joy. I, not that we're going to be one with God, not that we're going to be God, right? Peter called it partakers of the divine nature. That does not mean we're going to be God. God is, will eternally always be God. We will eternally always be creatures. But somehow, wonderfully, we're going to be caught up in who he is and participate in who he is. I, I, I wish I could draw you a picture I don't know what it looks like, but it's going to look, it's going to be wonderful. It's going to be big. Really big. Talking like our president. So what's the difference between these two groups of people? Those who survive the judgment and those who don't. Those shut out from God and those in whom God glorifies himself. It's not the difference between good and bad. Hear me, people. The Christian message has never been good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. If that's what you think, get it out of your head. The Christian message is that we're all bad. We're all terminally affected with sin. But God sent his son Jesus to be good in our place and to endure hell for our sins. On the cross, Jesus was banished from the face of God. He uniquely experienced what Paul writes about here. When Jesus shouted from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What was he experiencing? He was experiencing the eternal destruction of being banished from the presence of God. His own father turned away from him. So it comes down to where you stand with Jesus. Do you believe him? Do you trust in who he is and what he's done for you? Or, on the other hand, do you refuse, as Paul says, to obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus? Which is another way of saying, do you refuse Jesus? Are you consciously ignorant of God by refusing Jesus? 
are you choosing to have Jesus not involved in your life? That's the essence of sin. That's the bottom line of sin. Desiring to, choosing to live independently from Jesus Christ, God's only son and our only rescue. And that's why C.S. Lewis famously wrote in The Great Divorce, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, your will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, your will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. No soul that seriously desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek find, to those who knock, it is opened. So if you're not a Christian today, friends, the message to you is to seek Jesus while he can still be found. And if you do, if you seek Jesus, he will find you and he will not ever, ever turn you away. And if you're a Christian, the message is don't wait until Jesus' return to start marveling at him. Do it now. Right? Start marveling at Jesus now. You know, you're going to survive God's judgment. And you're going to be with God and participate in his beauty and his joy forever. Not because you're so good, you're so smart, or you're so moral, but because Jesus is so smart and so good and so moral for you. Get caught up in the goodness of Jesus, in what he did for you. His heart of love for you that motivated him to move towards you at great personal cost. Friends, it's as you marvel. It's as you marvel at Jesus. At his love, his forgiveness, his mercy, his patience, his gentleness with you, his humble spirit toward you. That the Holy Spirit will grow you even more Jesus strong in these tough times. So in 2021, let's marvel at Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you uh, for your love that also necessarily includes your justice. Thank you that you are returning to judge us, to judge the world. Thank you that that judgment, the sting of that judgment has for us been taken away because we stand behind Jesus and we know that Jesus has taken the judgment for us. Help us to marvel at that. And for those people here who aren't Christians or those people listening to this stream that aren't Christians, Father, I pray that you would reveal, reveal yourself to them, that they would seek and find you and know real peace and joy and beauty and love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California, or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido, reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.